University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. I believe I've indicated to you before that I'm somewhat of a history nerd. Uh, in fact, I just finished um, a book about that big on World War I, specifically the last two years of that war. Uh, that's how the nerdiness gets down into my life. But what's fascinating uh, and devastating in the history of World War I is it just shows how imperialism can drive countries to go to war all for the sake of the deep pockets of the ruling elite. Uh, it's estimated that in World War I that over 40 million people died. And the war devastated generations and springboarded really the modern mechanism of war. So we have World War I to thank for modern tanks, airfare, the weaponization of gas, and pinpoint explosives. But then there are some things from this war that you just, you just kind of scratch your head over. For example, did you know that the Germans had a bicycle infantry? Really take that in for just a second. <laughs> Is there anything more intimidating than, to an entrenched army than the sight of men in helmets with guns strapped around their shoulders and bayonets at arms all on the back of a bicycle? A couple questions come to mind. One, did they have little bells on the handlebars that they tried to intimidate them as they were crossing no man's land, or two, just how many times did it take for the bicycle infantry to try to cross no man's land where they're being mowed down by machine guns before they realize, you know what, this probably isn't a great idea. Is there anything more audacious than a bicycle infantry in the world's most devastating war? You know, every day you and I have the opportunity to do something audacious. It's called prayer. We're in our series, Audacious, Radical Prayers That Will Transform Your Life. And each week, we are examining a different type of prayer and why it's critical for thriving. We're not only learning about the different types of radical prayers, but challenging ourselves to put them into practice each day and developing a fiercer and, and deeper journey with God. And for this week, we, we look at the audacious nature of a prayer of intercession. So take a look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verse 17. Luke writes, One day Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there, and they came from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men, carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus, and when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, lowered him on his mat through the tiles in the middle of the ground, middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. See, by this point in the gospel narrative, Jesus has gained a reputation as a healer, an exorcist, a powerful teacher, and much more. And a group of friends bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus on a cot, Luke describes the scene in such a way that there's such a, a mass group of people that they virtually can't get through the crowd to see Jesus. So they do the next logical thing, come back later or just give up. No, they do something audacious. They get up on some stranger's roof, 
completely ruin the roof because they want to lower their friend before Jesus. These men were willing to introduce their friend to Jesus to the point where they're willing to destroy someone else's home. But they needed to get their friend to Jesus. These are good friends. And Jesus handles this moment with such grace. I'm sure he was teaching something really, really good. I'm sure he was getting to that really good part, and all of a sudden this man is lowered down in front of him on a mat. He doesn't get mad because his teaching was interrupted. He's not concerned for the poor homeowner whose home has just been ruined. His focus is actually on the faith of the friends and this man. That's right. It's not just the faith of the man that is healed, but Jesus notes also the faith of his friends. And because of their faith, this man's sins are forgiven. This is the first time that we hear Jesus in Luke's gospel say, friend, your sins are forgiven. In this day and age, a physical ailment and disabilities were believed to be a result of a person's sinful condition or their, something their parents had done. Therefore, Jesus is, is striking right at the heart of the matter by forgiving this man's sins. And, and don't you find it fascinating that he leaves this man's physical condition unresolved because the group of Pharisees and scribes are about to interrupt him. Look at verse 3, or excuse me, verse 21. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? At the phrase, your sins are forgiven, everything changed. And the Pharisees flip out. Oh, the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees are these highly religious spiritual leaders. They know all the right answers. They reflect personal piety. They know the law down to every single exclamation mark and period. Except when you do something wrong, they go all psycho Billy Ninja on you. And you see this again and again in the Gospels. They might have come to hear Jesus speak and maybe even perform a miracle, but they didn't come to hear this man from Nazareth speak blasphemy in their presence. And they come with their authority, their law, their religious insight to correct Jesus on where he's gone wrong, except all of this is happening within their mind. Jesus and the Pharisees, we'll see from the Gospel of Luke, become as good as friends as Superman and Lex Luthor, Robin Hood and the Sheriff of Nottingham. These religious extremists can't fit Jesus into their theological box. And so they reject and objectify and vilify him. And don't you find it interesting that the religious people in our story, the Pharisees, did nothing to help this man. They crammed this house so full of their own people that the people that actually need to be touched and healed can't actually get to Jesus. And when this man gets lowered before him, they don't jump up and say, hey, you know what, why don't you take our place? We'll step to the side so that you can be healed. Look at what happens in verse 22. Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been laying on, and went home praising God. Verse 26 says, Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God, they were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. 
We can add to Jesus' bucket list of superhuman skills mind reading, I guess. Wouldn't you love to be sitting in a room and somebody tells you exactly what you're thinking? It's pretty scary. And Jesus' uh, intersection with the Pharisees uh, raises an important theological question. Why are we as humans so concerned with sin and less concerned with restoring human brokenness? How often do our churches and religious people and society are so passive to the needs of others because we are so concerned with apparent sinfulness? We'd rather talk about the things wrong with other people and their many mistakes than make an ounce of an effort to help them, let alone love them. And the paralytics represents the countless friends and acquaintances and co-workers and neighbors and family members in our lives. We see God's priority here. What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Jesus actually honors this man in this moment. He, he's not only forgiving his sins, well, good. This is something he could do once a year at the temple anyways. But Jesus takes it a step further by giving this man his ability to walk and to run and to function everyday life. Jesus wants to make clear that he has the authority both to forgive sins and to heal and restore. And this brilliant text challenges us to find our place in the story as the paralytic the Pharisees, or the friends. So let's zero in on the friends because they're really quite remarkable. They give us a glimpse into the radical way of being friends with others. I believe this story has tremendous implications for our lives and for our friendships, and I believe Jesus cares about the types of friends we are. This passage from Proverbs 18, verse 24 says, One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Or as Eugene Peterson translated in the message, friends come and friends go, but true friends stick to you like family. In other words, there's a huge difference between the people that come and go in our lives and friends that stay close to you as family. The narrator is very careful in his usage of the words and the text. He, he first writes that, that one can be an unreliable friend. The word friend used here is rea. It simply means another or companion or neighbor or friend. At first glance, it, it seems to be normal and how you would normally relate to other people. But the second part of verse 24 heightens the type of friendship he's talking about. He says, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The word he uses here is aheb. It's a word that we see many times in reference to the Old Testament, which means friend, yes, but also means beloved or dearly loved. This term is trying to connect that there's a different type of friendship, one that's deeper and interwoven and grounded. But are we open to this type of friendships and relationships in our life? Have you ever walked into a workplace or uh, somewhere like church on Sunday morning and you come across your coworker or fellow church member and, of course, we all of us ask, how are you doing? And 99.9% .9 of the time we respond with, fine. And at the same time, you encounter people at church on Sunday mornings, how are you doing? Fine, fine. Everybody seems to be fine. And I, love we, I love when you're having a conversation with somebody who forgets that they asked you first how you're doing, so after you ask them how they're doing, they ask you again, how are you doing? Say, well, like I said two seconds ago, I'm doing fine, right? Or what about when you see that exact same person in the hallway later on in the day, and then you have the same conversation over and over again? We've been trained that it's socially acceptable to say that fine or good, 
when people ask how you're doing. Does anyone really want a person they've asked that question to respond honestly? No, we're just all fine, fine. We're all just, everyone's fine. I wonder how many times we've never experienced this type of friendship we see in our scripture because we've never allowed ourselves to be vulnerable and honest with others. Many, if not most of us, have a lot of surface-level friendships and relationships, and we have them because it's much easier to not let people see the mess and mistakes and brokenness and paralysis and needs in our lives. We all have a fear of being exposed or rejected or getting hurt, so we, we outwardly just say we're fine because it's so much easier. And it's not just that everything in this fine mentality prevents us from forming authentic friendships, but it's the fact that we're so busy that we don't actually have the time to stop and relate and converse with people. We're, we're so busy in thinking in our minds of where we need to get from point A to point B, and we're multitasking along the way. And let's just be honest, our busyness is often the symptom of an underlying issue of self-consumption. In our me-centric world that, that floods our screens and our shopping carts and our TVs and our magazines and marketing with always thinking about what's in it for me, how might my needs be met that we're too busy to meet the needs of others? Can you imagine what this paralytic's life would have been like if he had just had a bunch of surface-level friendships where everything was fine and no one really knew his inward struggles? Imagine what his experience would have been like today if, if he had a bunch of friends who were way too busy with all the other stuff they had to do in their lives. And of course, outwardly, his struggles were obvious. He couldn't walk, after all. But how many of us, we have those things inwardly that we are struggling with that we don't tell anyone about? I have some pretty remarkable friends that I, I don't deserve. About eight or nine years ago, Jennifer and I had sold our first house, and we were moving everything out into storage because we were building a new home. And when we showed up at the house signing, only to find out that the buyer had just gotten fired from his job and was no longer going to buy the house. What that meant was that we had to put everything back in the house, put the house back on the market, and go through that process again. We were obviously devastated and, and immobilized by this news. And in the chaos, my friend Vincent texted to congratulate me on selling our house. But when he found out what happened, he left work in the middle of the day and came and helped us for the next 10 hours, taking everything out of storage and moving it back into the house, even hanging pictures back on the wall. What the friends from our story teach us is that authentic friendships are forged in facing life's struggles together. Life's journeys bring all sorts of challenges and struggles, both seen and unseen, and we all have people in our lives that face chronic illness and depression, friends that have suffered with unspeakable tragedies, a miscarriage and stillbirth. We all know people who have lost marriage or their jobs, whose parents have some sort of addiction, whose children are making dangerous choices that will lead to painful consequences. The list of ways we suffer extend far too long, deep and wide. But right there in the pain and the struggle, something miraculous can take shape. In the heat of conflict and suffering, friendships become more malleable and shapeable. Of course, it's much easier to tell people we are fine when we face challenges. But something miraculous happens when we allow ourselves to be present and vulnerable in the struggles of others and in our lives. That the deepest bond can be formed if we just simply are present 
not really having to say or do much. The willingness just to show up preaches thousands of sermons of love and compassion. And, and the power of this story is not just in the friend's willingness to be present in the friend's struggles, but they did whatever it took to bring their friend to Jesus. These guys want to get their friend to Jesus. They go out of their way. They get a cot. They carry him. The crowds are so big, they climb up on a roof. They dismantle the roof. They lower him before Jesus. These guys really want to get their friend to Jesus because they knew what was at stake. They knew without a shadow of doubt that Jesus would heal their friend and that Jesus would bring wholeness to his life. And Jesus didn't just see the faith of the paralytic, but he saw the faith of the friends as great. And as we follow Jesus, we should strive to have healthy friendships that bring people before Jesus. But there's one problem. Have you noticed that Jesus isn't walking around from town to town these days? How do we bring our friends to Jesus if he's not physically with us? Is the answer just invite them to worship? Have you ever considered that the most powerful, impactful way to bring your friends before Jesus begins and continues with prayer? This type of prayer is called intercession. It's the idea that you have the opportunity to go to God in prayer on behalf of those who you care about, to lift a friend's name up, to specifically pray for the things that they are facing, and to ask God to give you the wisdom to see how you can best help them now. There are, there are five powerful reasons that intercessory prayer is one of the most impactful things you can do for your friendship. The first is intercessory prayer shares burdens. The Apostle Paul wrote in this Church, uh, the letter to the second uh, Corinthians. Uh, Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those with any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as we share abundantly in the suffering of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Praying for one another is a powerful way to bear the burdens of others. It's, it's it's a loving act to pray for someone and to join them in taking on the pain of their heart and bringing that before God. We may promise to pray for someone, and then, and then we forget entirely about it. It's out of sight, out of mind. But what a powerful gesture it is to seize the moment and to pray over a friend. In doing so, you have united them before God's throne and demonstrated that you care enough to step into their struggles. Second, intercessory prayer bounds us together. As we share burdens with others, stronger friendships are forged. Praying for one another removes our isolation. We all have those struggles of feeling like we live in isolation. When we share our pain, it invites someone into the sacred spaces of our hearts. And when we pray for someone else, it draws us closer in friendship. It helps us to see just how much they love us and we love them. Intercessory prayer also points us to God. In the same way that friends are brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus, when we lift people in prayer, we are pointing them to the God that loves and cares for them. Just as there is a powerful and struggling in sharing the burdens of others, imagine what it does for an individual that the God of the universe also shares in their struggle. In those moments, there's nothing so welcome as a prayer for a friend and directing us back to a loving God who longs to carry the weight of our burdens in our life. Fourth, intercessory prayer, trust in God's leadership and guidance. 
Prayer is an act of submission and surrender, turning our challenges and our struggles over to the one who knows best for our life and can help us navigate where we need to go. And when we offer intercessory prayer, pleading with God on behalf of loved ones and friends, we are trusting in God's ability to answer, and God does. We are given our capabilities to answer and depending on God, to keeping God's promises to answer our prayers. And when we pray for others, God answers us. Finally, intercessory prayer changes others and us too. Why pray if we don't believe it's going to make a difference? Jesus promised us that if we have faith as small as a mustard seed, that we can move mountains. And when we believe that God will act when we pray on behalf of others, stand back and be ready for a miracle. Sometimes that miracle might occur through you, where God is giving you the wisdom and insight your friend needs to have in order to experience change. But intercessory prayer also changes us. As the great Oswald Chambers put it, prayer is not a matter of changing things externally, but one of working miracles in a person's inner nature. While we pray for others, we plead with the God who intercedes in their lives, perhaps to bring healing or strength in difficult times, but we're also, also opening our own hearts up to change. And when we pray for others, we connect with the one who has the power to transform the hearts of others and change us in the circumstances at the same time. When we pray for others, we are reminding ourselves that life is not about me. When we pray for others, we are increasing our empathy with the struggles of others and opening ourselves up to wonderful possibilities. I have a friend who had a very unfortunate childhood. Uh, when he was young, he had a, a lot of pain and discomfort beyond the typical bumps and bruises of an active child. Um, when his parents took him to the doctor, the doctor took one look at him and then sent him to a specialist. And the specialist diagnosed him with a debilitating degenerative disease. And as devastated by all of this, the parents brought the news to their family, to their friends, and to their church. Countless people were praying for him, prayers of, of comfort and strength and courage and wisdom. So in a couple months, when the family showed up to his first treatment, they sent them through all types of scans uh, to make sure they were up to date on where they needed to target the treatment for his disease. But much to the astonishment of the medical staff, they couldn't find a trace of this disease. It wasn't hidden behind some corner in his body. They weren't misreading the scans. Miraculously, the disease was gone. Do we believe in the power of prayer? Do we believe in the power of God to bring everyday miracles into the lives of people around us? Right now, there are people in your life that you need to pray for. Co-workers whose spouses is facing a difficult diagnosis, a buddy who's been laid off of work, a neighbor who has surgery next week, a friend's child that's dealing with bullying at school, a fellow church member struggling with depression. There are people in your life that you have no idea are struggling with things unseen. There are people in your life that need nothing more than love and hope and mercy and strength of a God who can raise them up. So the invitation this morning is simple. Let us move from passive observ observation of the needs of people in our lives to 
active daily communication with God on their behalf. Throughout this series, we are inviting you to not just learn about these different types of prayer, but to practice these different types of prayer throughout the week. And we are providing a, a model prayer each week in the newsletter, the window, and also on the website. And we're going to pray that prayer on Sunday mornings as part of our time together. So this morning, I invite you to pray this prayer with me in your soul while I pray it for us. But then I challenge you each day to lift this prayer up to God. This is a prayer written by the theologian Thomas Akempis. Let's pray. Almighty and eternal God, have mercy on your servant, our friends. Keep them continually under your protection and direct them according to your gracious favor in the way of eternal salvation. May they desire whatever pleases you and with all their strength strive to do it as they trust in your mercy, O Lord. Graciously assist them with your heavenly help that they may always dil diligently serve you and be separated from you by no temptation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.